October 15, 1582, Pope Gregory XIII implements the Gregorian calendar after reluctantly agreeing to drop the name Greg Vember. Welcome to The Revisionists. I'm Brian Flynn. I am Zach Powers. And our guest tonight is one of the founding members of the Agency Sketch Group and a Denver darling, because uh, he's a little darling, uh, Corey Rhodes, everyone. Hey, everybody. It's me. Yep. Little, that's your American girl doll, little darling <laughs> Corey Rhodes. <laughs> that's your catchphrase, which is an American Americanized spin on Mario's catchphrase. It's a me. Wait, what? Well, it's just Mario's catchphrase, oh. but without the accent. <laughs> is, is it really that... Can it something be that simple and also a catchphrase? Uh, Mario proves that it can. Okay, Jesus. That's true. You broke a lot of ground, and one of them was in catchphrase technology. Broke a lot of blocks as well. Technology? Really? Uh, so, if you're a new listener, this show is essentially uh, a show where we take an event or a person from history... And one of us, uh, in this case, Brian, gives the true account of that person or event. And uh, another person, in this case, me, gives a crazy, fantastical, bullshit alternate version that has demon bats or some shit like that. Is that a preview? <laughs> Not a preview. Um. Um, and at the end of the episode, the third person, in this case, Corey, votes on which becomes our canonical history. All right. Mm -hmm. Since we last met... Uh, we had the Night of a Thousand podcast at Syntax Physic Opera. Thank you to everyone who was listening now who came out to that. Unfortunately, due to some technical difficulties, it did not record. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was just a special night between people in yeah. person and their human bodies. I together. regret before the show saying, fuck you, Acarius, the podcast god, <laughs> whom I vehemently denounced. <laughs> I mean, just saying fuck you doesn't seem that vehement. I also said Macbeth like three times. <laughs> okay. That's a theater kid joke to all of you sad people listening. Mm -hmm. So, listeners, this is the second episode of our October Spooktacular, where we discuss more macabre stories from history. Uh, last episode, we discussed the Dyatlov Pass incident with Kira McKaylin, mm -hmm. and the alternate history one out. And, sorry, my cat Willow, who you may remember from her debut on the last episode, uh, has already found her way in here and onto Zach's lap. Mm -hmm. Third time we've recorded with a cat in my lap. Oh, really? Yeah, Hamilton. Oh, Hamilton also. Yeah, that's right. So, she will be appearing probably throughout the show as she begs for our attention. Yeah. Distracts us from the task at hand. <laughs> well, listeners, this episode we're discussing the Axeman of New Orleans. So I think if we're all ready, I can take it away with the real mm -hmm. history. I think so. This real history is f fucking, even for a serial killer, spoiler alert, it's fucking crazy pants. Yeah. He had a way with writing notes. Yeah, he did. So we'll start on May 22nd, 1918, where brothers Jack and Andrew Maggio start hearing strange gasping and moaning noises coming from their brother's apartment. Mm -hmm. His brother lived behind the grocery store that he ran. Jack and... Uh, Jack and Andrew both claimed that they didn't hear anything before this because they were, quote, totally trashed. Yeah. And also their brother had a sock on the door, so they didn't think anything of it. <laughs> right. Because this was a frat house. Yeah, they thought he was just getting it wet, basically. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Sorry. Yep. I can't believe Whoa. Yeah. Turns out the only thing he was getting wet was the pillows with his blood. I can't believe it's not butter. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> 
<laughs> Is that what the investigators said when they looked at the the yellowish blood? <laughs> because he yeah, had a very poor diet. Well, no, it was New Orleans tradition. When you investigate a murder scene, you dip bread in all the blood to soak up the DNA. Right. And to test that it's actually blood. Like, not like how you see someone not grab a little spoon. Yeah, exactly. On a cop show, you'll see a cop grab a little finger of cocaine and be like, definitely cocaine. Those cops are just trying to get high, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Actually, that's how the po' boy sandwich was invented. They just took some fried shrimp on bread and soaked up human blood with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, not, that's not supposed to be appetizing, <laughs> guys. I'm just uh, trying to help. Um, too many cops listening who uh, want to become police so they can get high on all the free cocaine supplies they find. Don't do that in real life. You don't know what that white powder is. And also, you might get fired for that. Yeah, I mean, I was going to go again with, you might sniff bleach and die, but fired too. Yeah, okay. But I mean, even if it is cocaine. Anywho. um, So the brothers went next door, uh, and they found uh, their brother Joseph and his wife Catherine had been brutally murdered. Their throats were cut, and their heads were bashed in with an axe, almost as an afterthought. Um, And then, that's May 22nd. June 27th of that same year... Uh, making a routine delivery to a grocery store uh, owned by a man named Louis Bessemer. Uh, a driver found Bessemer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe. Uh, both had been struck in the side of the head with an axe. Uh, Lowe eventually died over a month later. That's just rough, man. That must have been a rough month for him. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> rough month. One of them got murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were late on their cable bill. Comcast yeah. kept calling them. Again, and massive just, uh, head wounds. Yeah, head wound that you just can't come back from. All the text message he's ignored over the last month, texting, sorry, been a rough month. <laughs> Hopefully get back to you soon. <laughs> <laughs> and sends an axe emoji. <laughs> yeah. There is not one, but there should be. There has to be. Sorry, one. got axed. <laughs> <laughs> so June 27th, jumping forth, August 10th, uh, Pauline and Mary Bruno are woken by commotion in the next room. Uh, they run into a heavy-set man in a dark suit and hat running away, and their uncle, Joseph Romano, with a serious head wound. He died two days later. By this point, all of New Orleans was in, like, constant panic. Uh, people were reporting finding axes stashed outside their back door, uh, and people called in just people in dark suits and floppy hats, which this is 1918. You have to figure that it was everyone, basically. Mm. In New Orleans, that's like what the Zatarans guy wears now, I feel like. <laughs> now <laughs> we know what the sausage is made out of. <laughs> so March 10th. I feel like a floppy hat would be a bad accessory for a murder. How so? I feel like you want a tight hat. Not <laughs> one that... I mean, is, I don't know the hat choice is really the main concern of a murderer. No, I mean, I just feel like no hat at all. Maybe yeah. even. Really? Ski mask really has come into its own as the preferred murderer. Headgear. Or pantyhose or something, yeah. you know, something Panty. to distort your face. So you Richard pre- Nixon mask. I guess that's more <laughs> that's more bank robberies. That would have been impressive if the X-Men of New Orleans had a Richard Nix- <laughs> Nixon mask. <laughs> In 1918. Uh-huh. It's actually just a baby mask at that point. Uh, also, yeah. I just like the idea that a Richard Nixon mask is like just a fashion choice you could just put on before you go out on the town. <laughs> Instead of like, oh, I could do a fedora. Could put on my Kangol or whatever. Yeah. Nixon mask. Freddy Krueger did did emphatically state fedoras are, are pretty good murder wear. <laughs> that if you take nothing the away from hottest, Nightmare on the GQ's hottest murder wear 
1984, Fedora was right up there. Yeah, I remember Freddy Krueger's commercial for uh, fedoras. It's like, get a fedora, bitch. But you know what? They did a lot of Photoshop on him on that cover. I just feel like it wasn't an accurate representation of Freddy Krueger. Well, unrealistic body standards. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I don't know what kind of thing we're, they, they could do we're amazing telling, things with Photoshop. We're telling our kids that having third degree burns over literally your entire body is not is not beautiful. <laughs> anyway, so there's a lull in the uh, in the Axe Man action uh, between August 10th, 1918. Uh, we jump to March 10th, 1919. Where Charles and Rosie uh, Cordemelia uh, survive an attack, but their infant daughter Mary sadly does not. Uh, and Rosie, while she's recovering, uh, accuses their neighbor Orlando Giordano and his son Frank of the attack. Uh, Charles denied his wife's claims. Orlando uh, was almost 70, and his son Frank was huge and couldn't have fit through the small hole the killer chiseled through the door. Oh, okay. I, th- I thought you were just going to say the regular door. Which yeah. <laughs> no, he was... I just want to... Uh, at that he point, was an ogre. I went to see a sitcom about Yorlando and Frank. <laughs> yeah. Oh, an old man and a son that's too big to go through doors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's high concept. Mm-hmm. It's like a, the early Sanford and Son. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? How is it like that? <laughs> They're related by blood. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, then. So, nonetheless, both men were tried and convicted of the murder. Uh, Charles and Rosie divorced after the trial, and Rosie later re- uh, retracted her accusation, and the Giordanos were freed. Uh, and this brings us to the first, like, granted, a serial killer is kind of crazy in its own, but this brings us to the first really crazy part of the Axeman story. Three days after the killing, uh, the New Orleans Times Picayune receives a letter from a man claiming to be the killer. Um, and there's a there's a lot in it that's typical serial killer letter stuff. It's very hot. Yeah, it's very like, I am from another realm. Like, yeah, I'm I came from here the from the planar yeah. realm or some shit. Yeah. <laughs> and I will soon adjourn myself of you mere mortals. Yeah, it came with a galley copy of his sci-fi book. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> my favorite part of this, this whole letter, is this paragraph where he says, quote, I'm very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is some of your people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, (laughs) if there be any, will get the axe. Um, Jazz clubs are safe. Jazz clubs are safe, and the story goes that that night... Every jazz club in New Orleans uh, was open late. And packed to the brim. And completely packed. And no one was murdered that night. But there's also speculation that it was just like a club promoter who wrote the letter trying to get people through the door. Which is a fucking great strategy. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. It's only slightly marred by the fact that it has to be illegal. (laughs) No, that's... Oh, threatening to murder people? Mm. Yeah. I gotta think that's illegal. But like... Having spent years having to promote comedy shows, I'm like, I could also see where that person is coming from. But to from. be fair, as bad as jazz often is, <laughs> if you gave people the choice of going to an open mic or being killed in their beds, I think it would be a tough call for some of them. <laughs> some would probably just be like, finally. <laughs> yeah. If you gave a cho- someone a choice of being murdered in their beds after going to an open mic, they'd be like, yes, I've seen, I've seen the depths. 
So after this, people start going insane, basically. Uh, people start sending letters to the newspapers that are, like, actively challenging the Axemen to come into their homes. One even said they would leave the window open and very politely asked the Axeman not to damage the front door. So that sounds like the Axeman is smart enough to know that that is a classic Home Alone trap setup. <laughs> that there is, like, a little flamethrower above the window. And yeah. he'd, like, look into camera for a few seconds while it blew on his head. Yeah. It, the, Mel- <laughs> melting his floppy hat. Yeah, of course. And the Axeman was famously deterred by... A, Fuck, I can't remember the the movie that's pl- Angels with Dirty Faces. Mm-hmm. Um, Angels with Dirty Souls. Angels with Dirty... Was that it? I think so. Whatever. Whatever, there were two. One in the first movie, one in the second. I spent way more time with Home Alone 2. This concludes our miniaturized Home Alone podcast. <laughs> so, October 27th, 1919, we have the last alleged Axeman murder. Uh, Esther Pepitone woke up to a noise and found a large axe-wielding man... Uh, fleeing her husband's room. Uh, her husband, Mike Pepitone, lay dead in his bed. Uh, but even though she saw him running away, Esther fails to describe any characteristics of the killer. And then the Axeman just disappears. And this is where some of the like crazy theories come in. So the razor that was used to kill Joseph and Catherine Maggio, the first victims, belonged to Joseph's brother, Andrew, who was one of the people who discovered the bodies two hours after the attack. Uh, police released him after questioning him because they couldn't break down his story at all. Harriet Lowe survived for a month after she was attacked. And in that month, she gave police various and sometimes conflicting accounts of what happened. In going through Louis Bessemer's apartment, uh, who was, again, her lover, they found letters hidden in his apartment written in German, Russian, and Yiddish. And she said she thought he was a German spy. Mm. So he was arrested on that count uh, and then later released. And the police who arrested him were uh, demoted for, quote, unsatisfactory police work. <laughs> oh, wow. That did, what a throwback when that was a thing that could get yeah. you demoted. <laughs> it's worth noting, though, that on the German spy front, there's a weird reference to uh, what's his name? Franz Joseph in the letter he wrote, mm-hmm. who was ruling Austria at the time. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, that was a bit strange. Um, so he was arrested and released. And Lowe, two days before she died, said that Bessemer himself was responsible for attacking attacking them. Uh, and he was arrested, but eventually acquitted uh, after like ten minutes of jury deliberation. So either juries were way dumber then, or just there wasn't any good evidence. Yeah. Or their version of 12 Angry Men is just a lot shorter than ours is. <laughs> but this this brings me to my favorite, favorite theory about an Axeman suspect. And we have to go forward in time a little bit to December 1921, all the way to Los Angeles. Uh, a man named Joseph Doc Mumphrey is shot and killed. Uh, LAPD learns he had recently moved there from New Orleans. And Mumphrey was part of a Black Hand organization, which was a sort of like mainly an extortion ring that targeted, like, immigrant business owners. And this is separate from the black hand that assassinated Franz Ferdinand. Right. Just, I was going to ask. It's a very... Po- they got to reach. Yeah. It, it's a very popular, like, evil organization name. I got to... F- Be more creative with your evil organization names, yeah. guys. No more black hand. No more Cobra. Spectre's uh, been done. Cobra Kai. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all I can think of. Hmm. Uh, Rita Repulsa. 
I guess. That's not really an organization. That's a person. Yeah, that's... The Legion of Doom. Legion of Doom. The South. Uh, but uh, he was part of this extortion ring targeting immigrant grocers, which happened to be the largest pool of victims of Axeman murders. And Mumphrey's time in prison corresponds to time periods where there were no Axeman murders. Hmm. And the mm. person who shot and killed him in Los Angeles, uh, Esther Albano, said Mumphrey killed her second husband when he refused to pay, and she killed him when he threatened her. Uh, and then she made another claim. Uh, she said that Joseph Mumphrey also killed her first husband uh, because it seems that Esther Albano's name used to be Esther Pepitone, widow of Mike Pepitone, the last Axeman victim. Whoa. And that is the The last scene in an episode of CSI, or the second to last scene, where all the pieces fall into place. What's the last scene then? Well, I mean, them confronting him, but he's dead in this case, so I guess that scene wouldn't happen. Yeah, okay. They just go to his grave and (laughs) And everyone tackles him. (laughs) Did it. (laughs) You son of a... Book him. And someone just throws handcuffs on a casket. Yeah, next to the flowers by the... Yeah, <laughs> the fresh dirt. I can see this actually happening on an episode of CSI. Yeah, Ice Cube says something clever. Is Ice Cube on CSI? I thought he was Ice on T. Ice I T. I thought he was on Law and Order though. Yeah, Ice T is LL- on Law. Oh, okay. Ice T is on Law and Order. LL Cool J is on a CSI or an NCIS. Well, we've cracked the case again. <laughs> <laughs> All important stuff we need to figure out. Of course, and that is what I could determine to be the verifiable story of the Axeman. That's an interesting, interesting tale. <laughs> Just leaving it at that. I have uh, a so pregnant with possibility. A slightly different account. Maybe I read a different series of articles than you did. Okay. But oh, you read a whole series of articles. Yeah, I, I read two. <laughs> I researched this for days. Uh, I was holed up making. I had like a bunch of pictures on the wall with lines connecting them. Okay. Um. <laughs> so our story begins in. New York City in 1960. <laughs> okay. Right. Different place, different time. A little bit of a time-space discrepancy there. Uh, yeah, a, a temporal event, I believe it'd be called. The city reeks. <laughs> <laughs> Just completely disregarding. You could hear the desperation howl through the alleys, replete with drunken vagrants. Are, is this Philip Mumphrey, freshly acquired with freshly acquired whiskey under his arm. Heads back to his office, only ready to fiddle with his newfangled electric guitar. <laughs> I thought, I could have sworn you were going to say fiddle twice. The sign on his door says, Philip Mumphrey, private investigator, though it's worn down by the ages. <laughs> and no sooner does he sit down than trouble walks through his office in the form of a dame. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Her name was Susanna Martin. <laughs> She says her friend and famous rock record producer, Caligula. Oh, yes, of course. Has been kidnapped by a man who wants to destroy rock music at its source. Early early 20th century New Orleans, (laughs) the hotbed of jazz that it was. Mm -hmm. And that the the perpetrator was none other than John Lithgow, famous rock music hater. (laughs) Is a young Lithgow, or is he... Well, time will tell. And Wait, time what, in this case... What does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. Time in this case means a time machine. Because, of course, Lithgow had us absconded with Caligula's time machine previously established in the canon of this podcast. Mm-hmm. 
to go back in time to early 20th century New Orleans and kill influential people involved in the birth of the jazz movement, which would lead to rock and roll, which of course he hates. Of course. Because he doesn't want teens dancing. Okay. And of course, getting killed in car crashes, which is really, those teens would not have died if they weren't dancing. Okay, so we know which side Brian comes out on on the dirty Footlo- dance, footloose debate. <laughs> he takes the case. She says she can help him get back there because she once built a time machine when she was living in, uh, you know, 16th century Salem. Wait. Okay, continue. Of course, she had been displaced in time, also mm-hmm. previously established in another podcast. Mm-hmm. Episode six, Salem Witch Trials. And he goes back in time to New Orleans in the 1910s. Well, he has to take a cover, uh, a cover job, so he starts to teach a bunch of young jazz students at the local school, <laughs> whilst all the while investigating the case. I mean, this is a perfect up. This is a perfect job for someone who's trying to kill jazz bows. Oh no! John Lithgow's trying to kill the jazz bows. He's trying to save the jazz bows. Wait. Oh, uh, Momfrey. Momfrey is trying to save okay. the jazz bows. Trying to track your characters. Correct. John Lithgow. Is there to kill the jazz bows, but he probably mm. also has an assu- assumed name and alias. Like the Trinity Killer or... Something like that. <laughs> and... I didn't mean to step on that if that was something you were doing. As time goes on, a, a couple murders uh, start up and... <laughs> um, <laughs> And he's doing his part. It. He's doing his part to uh, to track them. All the while, growing to love these rapscallion kids, <laughs> <laughs> who are becoming more and more talented as the days go on. And meanwhile, he's retaining his cover with Susanna, who's posing as his wife. But she always reminds him it's just a cover. But soon, cover turns to lover. <laughs> As they fall deeply in love. Just the look on your face when you said that. And Philip finds he might be happy for the first time in a long time. Are you, are you reading this off the back of a paperback? What are you doing? Uh, that remains to be seen. Um, he gets a, a hint from a fellow who comes in to watch his jazz students perform, an enthusiast of the art form, that he's most a shady character around his past house the past few days and he decides the best bet is to stake out this guy's house in case he tries to act well he does so (laughs) and one night having drifted asleep during a long stakeout he hears screams that suddenly wake him he runs inside the house and finds that the man is dead but his wife Harriet Lowe is alive Hmm. whoa she manages to mummer out the name or the words pepper pepper tone (laughs) (laughs) he doesn't know what that means i may have spoiled it by saying name you can edit that part maybe and also you said pepitone earlier i wasn't expecting you go that detailed (laughs) he traced but he hears a ruckus from behind the house the killer's still there he chases him down a long tunnel and finds his evidence dungeon but the killer has fled there too but the night of March the 13th is marked with an X, as is every night where a murder has occurred. <laughs> Back at the school, the kids are having hard luck. They're not getting any gigs, and their parents are poor. It could Wait, be... the kids are trying to get gigs? Yeah, it's everybody's trying to get gigs. The kids, their parents, every, all the jazz bows want gigs. Is this like... <laughs> but I mean, is this like a form of child labor, but for jazz? Well, they got to work. This was 19-whatever, <laughs> 18 or whatever. Kids worked. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, they're okay. out there gigging. Out there gigging, playing the sax. Grinding. Grinding. Yeah, I don't want to say that. But um, <laughs> they have an axe to grind, that's for sure. Booyah. There it is. That's what I'm here for. That's when Philip comes up with an ingenious idea. <laughs> you just punch a clock after you say that. Philip comes up with an ingenious idea. He'll send a fake letter to the police department saying that on March the 13th, every ha- family should hire jazz musicians to play at their house or go to jazz clubs. Thus, pro- solving both problems. First, the kids all get gigs, as everybody doesn't want to get murdered. And second, Lithgow is foiled by the presence of too many people in every single household. Also, the economy is stimulated. That's and the sort economy of like the, is stimulated. Yeah. It's the third... That's the Keynesian the economic third, model. The third spike on the trident. Um, <laughs> the third spike on the triangle. Trident. Trident. Oh, trident. Okay. Okay. I retract my argument. Uh, let's go doesn't kill you that night. But a few days later, he determines something disturbing at the school. The attendant notes that a man was inquiring about him and the Jazzbo kids. <laughs> Which sounds like a great jazz band name, actually. Fortunately, the man managed to take down his I- the name on his ID. Pepitone. <laughs> the case has been cracked. After a quick trip to the Census Bureau, he finds that there's only one Pepitone in the area who is centrally located enough to get away with that, all the murders. Okay, I was going to say that's very convenient. It is extremely convenient. You would almost say, like, I ran out of time and didn't have a more satisfactory solution. He runs back to his house to tell his wife, who he thinks may be in danger since Pepitone was asking about him, only to find her in the tub, dead. Mm -hmm. Trinity killer. (laughs) (laughs) The only good season of Dexter, people. Mm -hmm. He manages to make his way to Pepitone's home where he finds, of course, John Lithgow, covered in blood from the fresh murder. Lithgow taunts him that you may have saved rock music, but you lost your happiness. Before the detective bashes his head in with his electric guitar, the final Axeman murder. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) I forgot that I thought it was heading that way (laughs) to a guitar pun. Motherfucker. Oh, you beautiful motherfucker. (laughs) Momfrey sees the end of the school year out and sees his kids graduate. Saves Caligula, who signs each of the kids to an exclusive contract <laughs> and a few adventures on his time machine. Again, with Caligula and with child labor laws, that seems like unsavory. Well, we established, I don't know if we established he was not that much of a, I think he was like a a pervert, but a consensual, like, I don't know. Oh, I thought he was just, I mean, he was a madman either way, though. Sure. Um... <laughs> But those kids go on to be Muddy Waters and Lead Belly and Prince, you know, major names <laughs> displaced through time in the uh, evolve, uh, evolving rock industry. Mm-hmm. And Momfrey steps out on his own into the sunlight, knowing that the world is still a rotten place, but maybe, just maybe, <laughs> he can bring in a little bit of sunlight. Momfrey and Later, sons. he was shot to death by his, his, his new lover, so... <laughs> Uh, and that's the true story. Uh, that's the true story of the Axeman murders. Oh, Jesus. Uh, the story was later very loosely developed into the movie School of Rock. 
they had to cut the murder angle because it just didn't. It I was mean, like with Annie Hall PG-13. when Annie Hall was a murder mystery. I think Jack Black could play a pretty convincing murder if he. Oh if he god, what's that, that movie? Benny or uh, there's a movie where he plays a murderer that's very very good. Oh, Bernie, actually. Bernie. He seemed uh, like kind of a dick in King Kong. Wait, I've never seen his version of King Kong. Uh, Peter Jackson, King Kong. He plays the director. The guy who captures King Kong. And oh, like I thought you meant back. Peter Jackson in like a weird synecdoche oh, yeah. New York thing that he's doing. Yeah, it was very avant-garde. <laughs> For Peter Jackson. And a King Kong remake. <laughs> Where, of course, in the play within a play, they're remaking King Kong also, but with a slightly smaller ape. This time, just Bigfoot from Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> John Lithgow's there. <laughs> Oh, God damn it. Uh, well, Corey, ju- the role of judging falls to you uh, this episode. Uh, so take it away. So I get to judge which which is true, which is false. Huh? Which becomes, in the future of our show, the true story of the X-Men of New Orleans. Well, uh, you know, I feel like Brian Flynn's, uh, his version, uh, sounded a little far-fetched. So <laughs> No, I agree. <laughs> so I guess I'm going uh, with your version, Zach. Sweet victory once again. Uh, your version's canon. <laughs> yep, that, of course, it seems so plausible now. Uh, Corey, thank you. So, listeners, before we go, uh, we have a few, we have one sort of big announcement, uh, and that's that we are going to be starting up a Patreon page for this podcast. We like We get to see the numbers every other week when we... When we post episodes, and right now we're about 3,000 subscribers, and that's amazing, yeah. and we can't thank you enough. Our subscriber numbers are the opposite of Donald Trump's poll numbers. Timely. <laughs> that was a hashtag? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, now we're down to one subscriber, <laughs> who is, of course, uh, Chris Christie, bitterly. Mm-hmm. So... We want, we're going to use the money to put on more live shows and upgrade equipment. You can find the link to that on our Twitter page, but we're going to start, uh, once we have some good rewards going for people, uh, we're going to start actually pushing that more. But thank you to everyone for supporting the show by listening and subscribing. Really, really fantastic. Uh, and you could f- always find news about the show and leave us a comment or ask us a question at revisionistpodcast.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter, uh, Facebook, and now Instagram. And thank you to everyone who's written a review on iTunes. We're now over 50 reviews. Mm, yeah, I think 50 even. Oh, okay. Perfect. Um, so, yeah, thank you to everyone who's doing that uh, because it really, really helps. Uh, so, before we go, Corey, like I said, you are one of the founding members of the agency. Uh, you have a show Bits and Pieces the first and third Saturday of every month. Yep. Voodoo Comedy Playhouse, mm-hmm. 8 p.m. Do you want to talk about the agency a little bit and what you guys do? Uh, yeah, we're just a, you know, we're a sketch group. We do, you know, we got together because we do stand up and improv and we were interested in doing sketch. So, you know, you can check us out at agencysketch.com. We've got a bunch of videos up there. Uh, so we run kind of a variety show at the Voodoo, you know, but we're, we're gads about town. We do, uh, <laughs> sorry, I just... we do all kinds of, uh, performance art, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. so, uh, <laughs> uh, and that uh, that's also Walter Abbott. Walter Abbott. Walter, Walter Abbott. Robert, that would be a hideous, horrifying... Uh, <laughs> the horrifying golem. Yeah. <laughs> Mix those two creeps together. Man, can you imagine Walter Booth's face on Robert, Abbott, Robert Abbott's body and vice versa? He'd be no stop. There'd be no stopping him. He'd fuck everything. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Jesus. Uh, they're both very fine gentlemen. And you were also on The Great Arguments and Grievances. Uh, the day after this comes out, 
So that'd yep. be Sunday, so comes, yeah. Sunday the 16th. Yep, come see it tomorrow. Vine Street Pub, 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. Great right. show, free show. Uh, as for me, I'll be at Comedy Works Tuesday, October 18th at 8 p.m. Come check that show out because there's a lot of amazing people on that show. Uh, but I think that'll do it for this episode. Corey, thank you for being here. Dude, thank you. This was fun, guys. Yeah. Uh, Zach, thank you as always. No, of course. For everyone here at The Revisionist, I'm Brian Flynn. I'm Zach Powers. Have a good time. Have a good time. <laughs>